Hi, welcome everyone. It's uh, really fantastic to see you all here. And um, I got a chance to pop in on a few of the panels and performances today, and it looks like this is just gonna be, uh, at least for me, a really amazing festival. So thank you all for coming um, to the Anne Now Festival of New Writing 2011, Tomorrowland Forever. Um, I, I wanted to have uh, this theme when I started thinking of a couple years ago about how to write the description of our MFA program. And some of you are involved in institutions and you know, and, and also all of the writing, writers, and you know that when you're trying to talk about what kind of, what, when I'm trying to talk about what kind of writing I'm doing or encouraging, there's this problem of um, that adjective. Do we call it experimental? Do we call it, we're trying to talk about what kind of MFA program UCSD is gonna have. And so do we call it, and then everyone starts saying, call it innovative, call it innovative. And at the same time as everyone started saying, call, you know, let's just use innovative and that's big enough for everyone and it's sort of new. Then I also started um, seeing, you know, the rest of the school start to use that terminology. And this is a science school, if you haven't figured it out. It's one of the top science schools in the nation, in the world, actually. And that means that, that word started having some resonances um, with different kinds of capital and different ideas about um, what was valuable. And it made me start feeling really curious about why I wanted to use that term with my art practice. So then I started thinking about all the sorts of terms, experimental, um, avant-garde, these things that you know I'm sure many of us think about. Um, and then I thought about how much I loved Tomorrowland at Disneyland back when it was so kitschy and great. And I thought about this idea of innovation always like has this sort of old-fashioned feel to it already. Um, and so I just thought that I would introduce this idea when I was thinking about how to curate the um, featured panels and then leave it up to the presenter to handle how the panel ran. So we have presenters determining what's gonna happen on the panels. Um, and tonight's presenter is Connie Samaras and the co-director, Amina Kane, will introduce Connie. Did you say who you are? Oh, I'm Anna Joyce Hi everyone, thank you so much for being here. Um, so, as Anna Joy said, um, we asked Connie to talk about her own work and also present um, Roberto and Carol in order to um, kind of further explore the future's history, which is the theme of today, tonight. Um, so, Connie is an artist based in Los Angeles whose work deals with political and psychological geographies in the everyday. She is also a professor in the studio arts department at the University of California, Irvine. So, and there are many more things, wonderful things we could say about her, but um, you'll find out when she talks about her work. So, Connie, thank you. Uh, I want to thank Amina and Anna Joy for inviting me, and it's really great to be here with uh, an honor to be here with Roberto and Carol, neither of whom I've met, well, in passing Roberto once, and I'm a big fan of their work. So, uh, as Anna Joyce said, my work of the last 10 years, or the last 12 years, has dealt with future imaginaries and global capital, so uh, I'm just going to show a little bit from different projects. 
and talking non sequiturs. <laughs> and then uh, I work in photography and video, but I'm just going to show you a few photographs. And, uh, and the current, the work that you're going to see deals with um, built environment, global capitalism, and future imaginaries. Uh, but uh, I've now taken this conceptual turn of dealing with other kinds of future ima imaginaries. So. All right, so I got an iPhone. Carol's very impressed. So I said at the seven minutes, so when this rings, I'm going to stop and introduce uh, Carol Roberto because they are the stars tonight. Okay, here we go. And it's the robot ring. Okay. Oh, yeah, I should show pictures. Uh oh. There it is. <laughs> I'm losing my time setting this up. <laughs> It's backwards. Yeah, but it's backwards now. What happened to it? That's okay. I think I might switch back. I thought I'd do a slideshow on PowerPoint. Uh, okay, well, I guess. It's very hard for me to boil myself down because, uh, like Roberto and Carol, um, uh, my work, uh, see? I fucking hate slideshow. So, <laughs> irritating thing. Uh, all right, stop. Okay. Um, anyway, uh, a couple of the, the sentences I try to boil myself down to is that. Uh, I consider myself a spy in the land of prearranged photo ops. And uh, by that I mean much of what you photograph now and you all have had this experience. Uh, uh, there's very less and less that we can actually photograph in public and private space. There's no difference. And many photographers have written about this, commercial art photographers, photojournalists, that you're often turned away. You have to photograph the site that's there. And, um, uh, and I have, um, anyway, so one of my ways around that is to take on these persona play, right? And one of the reasons I realize I'm so good at it is because of all the humiliations I've suffered as a, a, woman, a woman and a queer. So I don't care if somebody sees me as an old, lonely grandmother or a stupid housewife. In this case, I was a bulldog undercover cop, and this is at Democratic National Convention in Los Angeles in 2000. And this is from the first series that goes from 98 to 2003. And uh, this is uh, it's called Angelic States Event Sequence, which is two ways of thinking about cataloging histories. Event sequence is a military term that goes linear progression, and Angelic States is from Walter Benjamin's Angel History, who's blown backward, her back to the future, and the, she's blown uh, violently by the violent winds of the past, the uh, debris of the past building up before her. Uh, anyway, I went in as a, and this, there's many from the series, but uh, what interests me was uh, in the late 90s and early 20th, early 20th century, 21st century, that the U.S. urban landscape started taking on a look of cyberspace. And what I notice is these future imaginaries are starting to be predicated on 
science fiction tropes. And I love science fiction, those good speculative kind, but what's interesting about sci-fi is, um, and I'm sure you all relate, is that the characters are very flat. And um, so uh, it goes, good science fiction writing goes against, certainly you can get the heroic stuff, like, uh, well, I won't give you examples, but you know what I mean. But, you could, but a lot of stuff, that, a lot of writing that goes against, that's experimental and goes against the grain, flattens the characters. So as a way of um, creating agency, right? So when you have a flattened character, then you have a sense of agency. Anyway, this is, um, this is the uh, number seven building, the last night at standing in New York. And uh, it's three in the morning, it's freezing. Uh, and you could no longer photograph there, so I dressed them all in black leather. Tough. I did an imitation of a former girlfriend who used to scare me. And they said, Cop says, You, you're from the New York Times, you can take this picture. And I just thought I'd throw in that um, when collectors go to buy my work, they go, Oh, God, this is so beautiful because I'm using seduction as part of it. But they'll say, oh, You know what? I'm not going to buy this because I think it'll be bad luck. And then I try to say, Well, bad luck's already happened. Uh, <laughs> Um, I don't think it'll bring more bad luck, but it was me bad luck. Anyway, so uh, in 2004, I received uh, a, a, a National Science Foundation grant to go to the South Pole to photograph, as I said, the liminal spaces between built environment and extreme climate. But I was really interested. The South Pole is an amazing place because every 30 years, and the U.S. is the only one able to build there, Antarctica is non sovereign. Uh, the ice calmly covers over anything, any colonial attempt made on it, colonizing attempt. And there's been three different structures. The early ones in the 50s looked like the, the Montgomery Ward housing kits that they sent out in Western Expansion after the Indian campaigns. Uh, this is from the 70s. This is falling out, it's decommissioned. This is the, the Bucky Dome. Um, and it's now replaced by this building that's now covered in black patina and uh, owned by Raytheon, and uh, is very much to look like a self-bomber when you're coming in. It looks like a cross between a shopping mall, a self-bomber, and uh, Starship Enterprise. <laughs> After that, I received more grant money because, like I said, you know, people feel these pictures are bad luck. So <laughs> I went to uh, Dubai, and this series is called, I did this in, 2008, 2009, and I'm usually generally bad luck. I create economic crashes wherever I go. When I moved to Detroit, it was the end of the automobile industry. When I moved to LA, it was the end of the aerodynamics industry. And little did I know, this trip was scheduled for the economic downturn. And, uh, and one other thing that's a, very, a major tenet of all this work is that, and, and, and various, you know, and Joyce talked about this, Roberto will talk about it, and, and Carol too, I'm sure, is that whenever you want to claim to the future, and Frederick Jameson's written about this, uh, there's an immediate obsolescence, right? So, uh, so to the same terms of day. Um, this is a, the largest, um, this makes the Bellagio pools look like um, a tiny little pond. Uh, and Dubai's picture of itself is like it's the far future, but really what it is, it draws off of the 20s kind of deco uh, and toga look, and also uh, 
a kind of 80s Blade Runner look. And what's very evident there are the workers that are were treated practically as slaves. And uh, some people would argue that they're slaves. So this is a, a mosque inside a labor camp, and it's highly illegal to photograph in these places. And uh, a lot of people, a lot of these South, East, South Asian workers, and I worked with a driver who translated for me, um, thought I was an Egyptian journalist and wanted to talk to me about their stories. Oh God, it's over already. Okay. okay. Uh, I'll do this quickly. Um, this is the last project. This is called Spaceport America. It's the first outer space uh, term, a commercial terminal port being built in the world in southern New Mexico near White Sands Missile Range. Uh, the building is a Norman Foster design. I was invited by the uh, museum in Santa Fe, New Mexico to photograph there. You can't get into it, it's impossible. And also, uh, what happened in all these projects is that I photographed uh, during construction periods, which then emphasizes this kind of, um, is it becoming or is it unraveling, right? So, uh, there's more I can say about how I think about the archive, and uh, but I'm not gonna bore you too much. Not for you, but um, anyway, I mean the way I shot this is very frustrating. You don't get the feel of a great uh, spaceport, but it's mostly a sense that you're on planet Earth. This is Mission Control looking out, and then this is facing Mission Control as you come back in. And this is actually in the beginning of a huge thunderstorm. And I will leave you I'll end this with an anecdote. Um, I was there with the director of Spaceport and two other photographers, all men, and a huge New Mexican thunderstorm came in and they parked us in the middle of the, the runway. <laughs> right? And uh, they were like, I, I would say things, do you think we're safe here during the thunderstorm? And they looked at me like weak girl, you know, I mean, very much in the heroic. And the narrative of Spaceport is that it sits on a, a El Camino Real which is the native steps, the ancient trade route between Santa Fe and Mexico City that was originally in the, the steps covered, with the, it was indigenous peoples who walked this. And uh, then the conquistadors came up and, and so on. And uh, this one part is also called Jornada de la Muertes, which means journey of the dead, because it would follow the Rio Grande River, but when they got to this part, uh, they'd have to, you couldn't follow the wherever, so you had to go 100 miles each word. And then what happens there uh, is that if there's water, you live, but if not, you, you die. Um, so this is a place of ancient history. And the way people talk about it there is it's like linear progression to the future. So even though many of us really critique these ideas of um, a kind of upward and onward uh, rhetoric of modernity, um, it's still very powerful. I mean, what's not ever thought about or discussed is that uh, the issue of the commons, right? This was originally the commons. It wasn't, now this is a commercial space port, so it seems like a logical progression to go to telecommunications launch. Um, anyway, this is a very long way of saying that my main interest is in looking at the future Philip K. Dick as a series of possibilities, not a singular probability. That's my comment. Okay. So now.
Nicole? Nicole? Robert? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> it's you. <laughs> um, it's with great pleasure Rebecca's going to speak first. It's great pleasure I introduce Rebecca Tejada and Carol Mesa, both of whom I'm sure you're very familiar with. Uh, it's just, uh, their interdisciplinary breadth is frankly stunning. Interdisciplinary, their creative and theoretical breadth is quite amazing. Uh, Roberto is a professor of art history. He was here and then he went to University of Tech in Austin and now he's at SMU. Um, he's a widely published poet, translator, critic, a theorist. Uh, his book of poetry, he has a book of poetry, Mirrors for Gold, uh, a, a monograph of um, Celia Alvarez Munoz. Uh, he's co editor of. Mandora, New Writing from Americas, and uh, his book, Mexican Photography, which I think is an amazing volume, is called National Camera Photography in Mexico's Image Environment. And uh, oh, Roberto, this is horrible. I forgot to full foreground. foreground. Uh, Roberto's next book will be published on the Arizona State, Arizona University Press in 2012, and it's called Full Foreground. And uh, Roberto will go first. And Carol Meso, as you know, has published numerous books, numerous awards. These include Ava Defiance, The Art Lover, uh, Essays Break Every Rule, which I just recently read, which I thought was amazing. Doesn't have to be yesterday. <laughs> and uh, she's a professor at Brown University, lives in the Hudson River Valley. And you told me that your mother was an emergency room nurse. And I read that your father was a jazz musician, in a way. So the jazz was perfect. So, Roberta's going to speak first, and then Carol's uh, 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 will be reading from her new book that's being published um, on Mother and Child, being published <laughs> next June 2012 on Counterpoint. I don't know why I'm blocking on Mother and Child. How hard is that to remember? You know, like full from anyway. Um, <clears throat> so after that, we're gonna, we might do a little roundtable together, but uh, also we certainly want questions from the audience and. You can see how you feel about this, but uh, I was thinking we could possibly take two or three questions at a time. So if somebody wants to make a statement, somebody wants to ask a question, that we give Roberto and Carol time to pick. But we might do it in a fine linear fashion. Why break a rule at the end now conference? Anyway, so I present uh, Roberto Tejada. As I prepare, I just want to thank the organizers of N Now, um, Anna Joy Springer, Steve Tomasula, and Amina Kane for your generosity. And of course, it's a pleasure to be here sharing the podium with Carol Mazo and Connie Samaras. So, the future's history. I read the title not only in the possessive case, framing the here and after by which avant-garde have routinely committed energies and attitudes, but also the vernacular meaning, wherein any absolute condition for the future 
is already a failed proposition, fast receding into the junk heap of the bygone, the future's history. Tonight, I'll be reading work that brings the afterlife of certain images into communion with a poetic present, so to speak, in order to stage a series of anterior futures, those junctures that enliven the spaces between perception and imminent action, between expectation and adjustment. Those ellipses are abundant with the future, with the impurity of time. Henri Bergson wrote, we lean on the past, we bend forward on the future. Leaning and bending forward is the characteristic attitude of a conscious being. Consciousness then, as it were, is the hyphen which joins that which has been to what will be, the bridge which spans the past and the future. But maybe this is wishful thinking, and in the end, we must side with Freud, who in the theme of the three caskets saw that we are obedient instead to a, com to a compulsion identical to choice, to repetitions that in hindsight we substitute for desire. So I'll read a seven section piece with that in mind. Nineteen sixty four, on the verge of imploding. Fireworks flared from the night sky, otherwise low and unbroken, over Wilshire Boulevard, but for a fleeting crisscross of searchlights unfolded now into the picture's past. The flash cascade of streams ignited aspects anyway of the privileged pageantry below as water jets propelled cellophane flowers from a reflecting pool. The multitude along the length of a causeway paused from its bustle up the plaza's double stairwell, and all the containable display above them reduced the polished crowds into a, an illegible scrawl. One group, assembled to observe on a level at the east end of three commanding pavilions that flacked the raised plaza, another from a balcony jutting out from the west building, a sliver of which doubles in this photograph as a surrogate left-hand frame. In low-angle perspective, against the carbon upper field, the phantom glow of the architecture appears to cast the composition into a theater of claims to perpetuity drawn back by so much luminous concrete receding into the uncertain depth of the emulsion. Los Angeles Times photographer Joe Kennedy framed the composition with a bare flagpole that cuts in from the right. On the lower edge, a solitary stone bench marks a diagonal. It provides a minimalist base from which to recognize, at least in light of the festivities beyond, another inflection to this moment, someone's outsider status. Under the heading, County Museum of Art Dedication Rights Held, the newspaper editors have cropped the photograph to a vertical fragment of the previous night's ceremonies flagpole and bench now missing, the balcony crowd no longer present. The fetid new culture palace, however, still loomed out of reach and in spatial command of the goings-on below. In months prior to the opening, the Times had featured accounts of the three-building campus and its construction, the largest art museum built in the country since 1940. To strains of the national anthem and Handel's royal fireworks music, 
Those assembled that evening were cheer cheerful converts to that aesthetic faith that now materialized in steel and concrete. The photograph encapsulates a group-specific idealist fantasy formation about a style of municipal belonging. As a construction, it framed a cultural location for the right kind of public, the mutual production of a material site and imagined audience. Capturing a particular brand of Los Angeles triumphalism, dazzling, detached, Joe Kennedy's original negative of the eventually published print advances the ironies contained in this conspicuous display performed jointly by municipal elites and a new class of cultural consumers. The picture meant to inaugurate a strong, unchallenged image of Los Angeles whose culture classes could encourage a theater of common cause, a proscenium of historic scale as the lacking antecedent and without contrary account, to serve as proxy for occasions of public assembly, generally deficient except as on that Tuesday night when occupied by largely concurrent interests. You can't help but be struck by the relative compliance and forthcoming tone of the times, or by the undisputed truth of the new museum's institutional presence appearing in that conventional medium of public record. Such was its power of invention as to induce a form of convenient forgetting that made possible in Hancock Park this, pro this photographic pavilion of distraction. The picture survives what it meant to deflect, the invisible wreckage, so to speak, that enables any elation. Walter Benjamin had suggested that distraction serves as a kind of catharsis, a psychological phenomenon whose opposite in material fact and collective experience, applause for the benefactors, cheers for the civic authority, are so many dust clouds of demolition. View the photograph long enough with the tiniest shift of perception and the nighttime museum appears under the weight of that multitude and the ignited display on the verge of imploding. Two, 1954, Film Noir, Telescope. When, in Besame Mucho, Nat Cole intones all of Rea Boulevard's again a buoyancy of ride, dry vermouth, dash of bitters, as when the congregated swayed at Swanee Inn, body weight to lunge a slow one inhaled in common hold, como si fuera esta noche, last chance departure to tumble this ultima vez, when Alvaro can idolize Soledad, her downcast blush, perfected ice clink, accentuated traces of backstep paws arrested flesh touching fabric with a hand insinuated flush left on waist, so pressed against as to blazon into tremulo of lower back and clavicle by cymbal scratch to dance and Mai Tai cocktails. Slurring to strings resistant, but for the pursuit of Los Angeles is still distracted after all the invective, lime juice jigger of rum in rain, rain time than some the month of March, sticks and stones, glass sliver cliff at roads and whatever else in camera lenta surrenders claim to conclusion in radio words of uplift, a once and future sermon by Sister Amy on the Sunshine Hour. And on that subject of my vanishing, let me add that by rack and narcotics, narcotics held hostage in a shack at Agua Prieta, from the desert I was spared, if God is my witness, the lasting brunt of so much banter as volleyed over highballs at Don the Beachcomber, 
Abitwe's allegedly, in the end, she was buried with a telephone beside her inside the coffin by a couple debating over supper somewhere. Was it lentils in Granada or frog legs in Uruguay? And I swear if you don't put that thing away, I'm leaving. Again, the aging, aging pitch. It's Consuelo Velasquez, her lyrics, I mean, from a window east side of McCadden, as though what don't get compressed on this emulsion sea, every picture in your skull elapse, tonight every motion prone to give it all away, each day from any switchboard in efforts to leave no trace instead from a telephoto lens, point being mañana, then Feds is going to seize his mansion on Murfield, claiming played every beer joint from Tijuana to Bakersfield, bah, senor delinquent tax is back at you from Havana, if it isn't the Bureau of Eternal Revenue bent on taking the deed to Hancock Park and repossessing the Fleetwood. Nineteen seventy one, today on this day. Jane Cortez has claimed to locate her poetry in the unconscious and its concrete objects, employing visceral citations and a language of the lower body to render to render syllables immediate to their action. I guess the poetry is like a festival, she remarks. Everything can be transformed. In nineteen seventy one, Cortez printed Festivals and Funerals a self-produced limited edition composed on an IBM Selectric II. At 44 pages, the saddle-stitched book, a rare object, was an extension of her phrase text imprint and a forerunner to her long-standing Bola Press. The volume establishes a space of relation between the 25 poems by Cortez and seven drawings produced for the edition by artist Melvin Edwards, each class of line remarking on its adjacent medium. The collaboration furthermore hinges its two media in concrete spatial and temporal terms, expectations and real time cut back and forth between typographic lines and ink markings. Cortez's poetry, unflinching insofar as it seeks to explore the brutal underside of expressive acceptability, makes such zones of interdiction possible in language that explodes with joyousness even as it's capable of collapsing space at once social, psychological, geographic, and economic. Parallel leitmotifs include those of injury and amputation, flesh in its various states of combustion or breakdown, diseases congenital or infectious, and pathologies acute or chronic. Pan-African rituals blur into the violence of transatlantic slavery and again into the brutalities of the modern-day clinic. In this, her poems already shared elective affinities with Edwards' recombinant structures made of metal tools, stand-in body parts that amalgamate to resemble ceremonial masks rising from, from the junk heap of modern consumption. Following their involvement in respective Southern California art scenes, Edwards and Cortez were living in New York when they embarked on this poet-visual-artist collaboration. Those, narrative points, those narratives point back to its origin in Los Angeles. In their collaborative working method, Cortez first sent the complete manuscript to Edwards, living at the time in upstate New York, who returned to her a large number of drawings grounded in the book's argument, structure, lexicon, and subject matter. Cortez then proceeded to select and visually order the drawings into the sequence of the book. 
the cover drawing to festivals and funerals, relates formally to that on the interior title page, which we're looking at now. Position to the left is an upturned mask-like set of triangular teeth that form a grimace flashing mouth. An eye nipple nestles on a pair of breast lips, overlapping vision and voluptuousness in a totemic ascent of glands, eyes, and nose. Although indistinguishable and impartial view, the configuration is rendered in solid bold lines and confident strokes, the marker's flat tip allowing Edwards to create thicker curved segments with a downward mark and narrower lines on the horizontal and diagonal. These chain formations prompted from the unspecified space of the blank page materialized into long and short phrased gestures, equally stressed between the flatness of the marking and the volume of the recommended form, is what Cortez submits as, quote, second-headed face in an adjacent poem. Together, there emerges a chilling traction between the visual body parts and the ritual geography of cause that nominates, quote, an arm for a rapist, a leg for a servant, a prologue poem is followed by another riveting vision in Today on This Day. An inauguration takes place, invoked by a subject in corporeal tatters, a baptismal offering in a fluid of tears. Proximity of terms, however, as rags to bottle to pop bottle, suggests that the liquid is combustible and that the object launched is a firebomb like those unleashed in 1965 on the streets of Los Angeles. The speaker bids sardonic well-wishing from a place of destitution, and the blistering temperatures turn progeny into corporeal decay. A single line, an eerie cheer for the health department, invokes spectators to watch a Friday crowd of injured bodies spread out on stretchers as they are made to tumble into some storage place underground. These cadavers serve as surrogates for the decomposing foundation on which future admission is contingent. Today on this day. Today on this day, I would like to push forward from my shadow of rags and offer this pop bottle of tears I baptized in. Good luck to you from my torn suede shoes on the same day of my daughter's eyes, putrefied in monkey heat. Hooray for the health department. I feel damp before such an audience of mascara and white coats waving their bye-byes to the Friday crowd of occupied stretchers, bye-bye, from the basement smell of their budget, bye-bye, today on this day of Jaws in the fifth month of resemblance at the end of a pretzel on the heart of my son's remembrance, thump, thump, thump. Hands off my vomit number three, recruiting number four, turning the exit to enter my torn shoes in numbers. Warning, I take back my tears, my love, my daughter's eyes, today on this day of no admittance, no return, keep out, cash only, day of shit. The sexual excitement and farewells at mid-poem are a defiance despite the Beaumont or scientific elites, audience of mascara and white quotes waving. And some of the visual citations are continuous in mood with the drawings by Edwards. The words jaws and pretzel betray oblique relation to the markings evocative of flaps and loops under an obtruding brush tip or traditional spear-like tool. This interlacing submits that likeness 
is to remembrance as the commemoration of a son or a daughter is to history. The institutional or hallowed spaces prescribed to the speaker, no admittance, no return, recall, together with the drawing's archaic lines that in the economics only of manufacture and consumption, money and human waste are of a piece. Festivals and funerals is the effect of a meeting place between argument and image whereby no perfect fit is possible. That alliance, however, together in crisscross depiction as voice to embodiment, is better able, using the celebratory occasion as defiance, to articulate the taboo descriptions of a history shaped by American racial violence, its intermediate picture of US society for which Los Angeles was a blueprint is at once a form of interment that estranges speech and the achievement of a partial task to act in the world by rearranging its relations. Nineteen ninety seven, Mexico City, full foreground. Full foreground and shortcomings of this inner course if our voices mattered amid this kind of predictable thinking, institution of secret civil silence or stammered over without filling the gaps in an ecstatic state of clashing consonants when it all comes off the jack end behind the back alley storefront and pullback sway. I mean, I couldn't care less about anybody's private life, but it helps explain why total incompetence with no knowledge of a language or society are running the show, which is to beg it, I know, and so self-inflicted, I'm creaming over these officers of the, of the peace, joint chiefs of staff, no longer anyone to punish me, and so extricate myself from the weird undertow that kept me here to begin with, in acrimony of mind and argument, in avulsion of what I weigh when I tender you power of attorney. As when a machine rises to the surface of the present, like the completion of a past and it's a point of rupture from which a legacy will emerge in the future, an evolution as per all the creative forces of science and art and social promise entangled in an emerging sphere of abstract efflorescence, a blurring agent, a blurring effect over these agents of change in places where local language is deemed insurgent, these truant cascades of speech repeatedly coerced into dropping all that ornamental excess of parse spell and punctuate our thoughts into the chilly spaces of the textbook. If we are to master the brawn of power and knowledge, a kind of opacity through which the various will have difficult passing, difficulty passing, save in other ways to be sorry, I know say this more better when the, 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 the guys call me sugar or sweetheart. Nineteen seventy eight Los Angeles, electrify me. Astrobright melon is the commanding silkscreen color. Two fields of vibrant orange pink divide the poster into upper and lower planes, one in a diagonal pattern held together over an area of the underlying paper as though attached by two black strips that resemble electrical tape on which letters appear to spill. They reiterate the bannered moniker above, a high-pitched announcement, plugs, broadcast in radioactive yellow typeface. A slanted inset over the cantaloupe backdrop features photograph material 
the headshot of a male youth sporting a spiked coiffure, his eyes bulging, mouth open, and teeth firmly chomping on a spiral telephone cord. Over the purple and black dot pattern of yet another titled bar below, the typeface in jukebox brush script reads Nuevo Huevo, transposing new wave into Spanish. By 1978, the year artist Richard Duardo created this poster, the plugs, a punk-inspired trio fronted by Tito Larriba, the poster's likely photographic subject, had much, gained much admiration among critic, critics, peers, and fans alike as one of the most exciting outfits playing the Los Angeles club circuit. With its underground origins linked at first to short-lived venues like The Mask and Larchmont Hall, the scene gradually surfaced to include other locations in Hollywood, the Whiskey A Go Go, and the Starwood, in Chinatown, Madame Wong's, and the Hong Kong Cafe, and downtown's Al's Bar. In 1980, the all-age performance venue, The Vex, began to operate in East LA as an extension of self-help graphics and art, the community art center founded by a Franciscan nun, Sister Karen Bocalero. It served East Los Angeles' primarily Chicano-Mexicano community by offering print facilities so local artists could create silkscreen works such as Plugs Nuevo Huevo. Cultural, as well as geographic distances, separated the worlds of Hollywood and East LA but if there was any band capable of bridging those gaps, it was the plugs. For example, when they headlined East LA Night at the Roxy on Sunset Boulevard, together with The Brat, The Undertakers, and Los Illegals. Tito Larriba's oft-remarked charisma was, was matched by his calibrated musicianship of bandmates Chalo Quintana and Barry McBride, later replaced by Tony Marisco. Talking to Times writer Christine McKenna, McBride summarized the sound of the band as an amalgam of rhythm and blues, heavy metal, and traditional Spanish music, end quote, whereas McKenna herself described them as playing, quote, hard-driving punk with a melodic edge, with La Riva as the riveting exemplar of, quote, elegance, humor, and conviction. With his lyric minimalism, La Riva skewered the media-driven, quote, mindless contentment looming over the new creative class of Los Angeles. All of the normals want to be on TV. He sang about desires and discontent, too, in the emergent scene of which he was a participant witness, all of it taking a toll on everyday selfhood, quote, a gain, a loss, no matter the cost. With rare emotional tenor, their songs, recorded only on two albums, Electrify Me, 1979, and Better Luck, 1981, belie those U.S. promises that do not distribute equally, especially if you are socially marked in the spatial disconnection of Los Angeles itself. Quote, when things look closer, that's when they're furthest away. To the actual distances separating parts from the whole of the city, indeed so often keeping the various scenes asunder, came the increasing price of oil throughout the crises of the 1970s. Duardo's silkscreen includes the numbers intoned by La Riva and the plugs in a secret agent punk tune entitled Gasline, referring to price hikes at filling stations in Los Angeles from 1975 to 1979, at a time when fuel was still counted in cents per gallon, 55 to 61, 61 to 84, 84 to 90, 
the song conveys a historical moment whose continuation was at best precarious. Quote, we're all tapping gas, don't light a match. The underground rock elite of Los Angeles was as much involved in staging the nightmare aspects of Sunset Strip Glamour, John Doe and Exine Cervantes' dissonant vocalizing to sex and drugs in high society, as it was committed to spoofing industry ennui and showbiz exceptionalism. One need only consider the stream of consciousness lyrics of X's nausea, like a candy bar wrapped up for lunch that's all you get to taste poverty and spit, poverty and spit, to see connections pointed back to the proto-punk poetics of Jane Cortez and her critical dissociation from the Beaumont and other elites in a kind of exuberance that can intone no admittance, no return, keep out, cash only, day of shit. Six, 2009, Los Angeles, Lost Continent, after the artist, after the artist Ruben Ortiz Torres. Please be patient as we uncover more of the lost continent to share with you. Prismatic light beams and motion to so enhance the monuments encouraging society, Goliath in its seizure of the earth people, former technology of bone, Dawn's incessant yowling, renewed skin, a sort of liquid flesh. That we wish, even as tutors conveyed the alphabet to faraway townships, need, even with our rhetoric of puzzlement, faith overturning this makeshift enclosure, this great asylum in the ancient city of the Indies, to salvage our nation from disgrace and despairing not, to us was tendered this mistress builder, most suitable to bestow the colossal head on the ground shuddering all day blood and gold great mother, as when we found it, no longer migrant, holding in the highest glory, honor and renown to her most worthy everywhere throughout all ages and generations, amen. There were two kinds of breathing in the night, one that was jelly colored and semi-solid, the other stunted in rapture or awestruck in such unbreakable blaze as with incense and coagulates to the artery, to cells that divide and did duplicate, divide and duplicate again, cross-eyed, very close to the triangular nose, upper teeth in baskets and bundles, like a shipment of newspaper, very old admission stubs, a cheap notebook. All things artless, half real, anyway. If a casket, if a prankster effigy reflected face in a thousand interlocking parts of what followed from the center point where I am outside the fiberglass capital as in the one it beckons from a middle order meaning. Out of isolation and forth to the deputy recitalist of myself in surrogate space, precise eye of a properly positioned witness like the visitor contained by sound, full ceremony, perverse in aim, as even the strange novelty's concurrent role was no how natural in relation to the person of the world I was, but a careful construction in the urgent theme that was a single death. In the modest epic, most immediate of our demise, I mean recall, translucent and disposable, the remaining corpses. World that was smaller than were we so immune to escalation? Had there been more to fabricate in the lost continent and to relay? I acknowledged the cranium from the old populace and paid my tribute to the new passing reference in degrees of routine or memory as was prone to fit on gossamer sail. 
The laboring populace have lost its faith, bemoaned the boatman. You work if you intend to eat, already by mizzen truck with the factory vanguard, a millennium or two of meteoric growth in onshore commerce while the class struggled, while the opposing party adored the technocrats who made vulnerable, ignored best practices, inauspicious to the earth folk who bestowed us no distinction as with the likes of blue-collar wage labor output production lines given to befriending fire hydrants and phone booths, from the hard workers of the local megastore to the lot of us wretched who learn to accept your differences and embrace our flaws. Boomtown hub, big money, high style, and ostentatious wealth, long replaced even in the labor union. I used to think model worker was the title for ordinary bodies that toiled hard rules and regulations notwithstanding the racketeer reported. But now migrant workers, like me, also merit the distinction, proving once again the elected culture populux in the atomic age meets the temple of the inscription slogan in op in, to oppose re-election from the general strip of revolutionary, revolutionary nuance, temple of the sun, telling temple of the count to salvage, temple of the foliated cross, sharp on the oncoming axe blade of aqueduct, wind glint, the vertical distance relative to the reference point of an edifice projected onto the plane, vertical to temple of the lion, sleep bundled mouth wide open as though to bellow and siren structure, 12, Phase six devoid of shading, ritual appended to official documents, chiseled to a rhythm other than my own. Because they feared the perils and aftermath in more ways than they loved the light that would leave them sometimes asunder. Dynastic novelty of all modern convenience to reassemble a product sold inside as the alphabet attraction of its architects. A theory, if I didn't doubt there was a god, killed by coagulation a land could so venerate as to amuse, God who, not enough to claim by open gashing of the solar plexus, queen bishops to Huitzila Bochli, I was awakened at one in the morning, a terrible moan. I thought maybe thieves, rain otherwise dripping all over this household, and still no arrival. I'm desperate, rainwater refusing to obey. If the drain pipe moans are ended, if this, only this, has nothing else. It was time for my replacement mother, a cactus, flesh that wasn't flesh, from the flaming mortar of antiquity, to declare the northern desert exile for all measure of paterfamilias, hyperkinetic emblem and saturated color, after the mashup act between neighboring nations, arsenal of foodstuff and lower transit by, re by request, sensations new to denizens demanding entertainment of the ignited variety, cartoon cigar, that detonates to singe my face into an orifice too of blinking light or a pyramid permitting matters head first to so decline. Two thousand eleven. Ledger anniversary. Where on the morning Day in duplicate was I without picture to recall, day in sequence, holy ghost, the telephone, ignoring the news, knows not, yes, that would be fitting, expedient, suitable, opportune, voice that begins with short hello, strong note, telling the item it stands for, speech stringed to commit, ease tension, state fact, curtailed information with such gladness as to eclipse a surname, disembodied, 
mine. It's the same old ability to speak as ever. To this person for whom acquisitive I exist alone in the privilege of my household, as there are images on the television, and a voice skilled to submit in brief abridgment its business. An example is this. Expandable for greater versatility, and with different features to match, in a portfolio free of risk, the key here, keep it compelling and to the point, creeping horror in real time of the unthinkable impact arriving in episodic bursts of chilling disbelief, signified first by trembling floors, sharp eruptions, cracked windows, fireball through a building, actual unfathomable realization of a gaping, flaming hole in the first of the tall towers, and then the same thing all over in its twin for a hell mouth as civility to breaking point fastened to this other voice in spirals. Listen closely to what I say, for either it is yes, I am with you now, or no, the city disintegrating, revulsion somewhere, now everywhere, nowhere safe, and there in the picture is our talking. It cannot cease, it plummets also down the side of the South Tower in free fall. And a caller for whom the merciless sight of bodies helplessly tumbling out, some of them in flames, an example is this. It should have been enough for us to find me without recourse to oppose, but it wasn't. It wants me here, strapped between another transaction and catastrophe, like voice, for whose sake, I who am nothing, like it without cease. An example is this. Say the kingdom in all its dust and debris, all the money guaranteed in cataclysm, on television, here together with me, our dividends in fourfold, to enhance the here and after. Thank you. Unbeknownst 
that is on its way there to meet it. Something in our lavish dreaming that yearns for that which cannot be known. The still uncreated, the still to come, as Derrida calls it. I have also come to believe that the future is reaching for us, is beckoning to us, and is months, <laughs> and is <laughs> monstrously lonely out there, <laughs> and is coming to us for company. What we need to do, I think, is to stay open and receptive to this appeal as Derrida calls it, in the taste of the secret. We need to be open to the future's appeal, listen for its intimations of, the, uh, of something which is essentially silent, which cannot be said or formulated yet. We need to be sensitive to this formlessness, this enigmatic thing. Can we create a vessel that might attract it? Probably not. We have to be patient and humble and not define or pin it down or conceptualize it too much or it will recede for a while and vanish. If only for a while and we really don't have a while left. Derrida talks about the now point, the place we find ourselves in the present. Every so-called present or now point is always comprised by the residue or the trace of another experience that precludes it from being a now moment. What is really happening is always to come, the thing that is always slipping away. And as with the past, the future is already moving through us, though we can scarcely perceive it. What I like most about the future is that it cannot be pre-comprehended. It asks us to be tender and to embrace it and to embrace the unknowable, to welcome it without the will to control or manipulate or possess it. If we think or dwell on it too much, it evaporates. We need to be open to its intimations, the most minute or fleeting recognitions, echoes, shadows, reverberations. And we must, I think, try to find the way to be open as well to our fear, to the stark fact that we will end. And that too informs our attraction to the future and its attraction to us. And that there is necessity to our project to keep our antennae up and our acuteness and our stamina. I have recently been moved from the immortal column a column I've always placed myself in and operated in, to the emphatically and decisively mortal category. Having been diagnosed with a congenital heart problem that I have lived with my whole life unaware of, but that happens to be 
one of the four causes of sudden death. And in an instant, something that was a vague, far-off event in some anonymous, amorphous distance comes dizzyingly close. I've only known this for about six months, but it's changed the nature of the vulnerability and the porousness and the openness in which the future now streams through me. I am afraid, but I am also filled with wonder and awe. Have I been filled with this and open to it all along? Yes, but it will be different now, though how I cannot know yet. There is one thing though that is new and that now and <clears throat> that is new and that now as I reach for the future and it for me, I do know. And that is that there is not one day that is promised to us. I'm going to read from a while, uh, for a while from um, a novel I uh, recently completed and uh, called Mother and Child. It's a novel of appearance and disappearance of the continuum of past, present, and future, and more than any of my other books, I think, about the intense enigma of existence. It's in short pieces, not in any order here, um, so you have nothing to worry about. I'm just going to read. The mother's garden unnerved some who saw it, because always it seemed on the edge of disarray, barely contained, at the place where any moment it might be reclaimed. There was something exciting about this cusp to the mother, that place in the day where at any moment the garden might return to chaos, but did not. It held its own. Looking down from the second floor window, she could see its architecture clearly, the boxwood, the dwarf spruce, the pergola, the birdbath, the circle of stones. She loved what people thought to do with the small plots of earth allotted them. She was making a pattern, a design, a dwelling, a haven for their small time on earth. That much was clear from her perch. Even though the child was holding a stone, she easily rose up two flights to the window where the mother looked out. The mother waved, and on the aging stage, she cast herself centuries into the future, where she could see that a few rocks that she and the child had, a few rocks that she and the child had once arranged in a circle remained. Another mother and child had unearthed them and for a moment they had intimations of a garden perhaps that once existed, and they reached back towards something ineffable but real, holding the very rock the mother and child had once chosen for the circle and caressed. Further, even into the future, when the circle is taken apart 
and rocks have scattered and gone back to the forest, something still of the mother and child has been left behind. For a moment it stayed in her, the full weight of the feeling of what survives, a momentous feeling, a rock in the forest that someone had once held. It was a prolonged moment, momentous really, and then it was gone, and the, mo and the mother resumed her day. Only figments of the feeling remained in her after that. Flight, design. Something about this comforted the mother. All effort passes, everything of us, and who we were disappears as though we never existed, falling back into obscurity. What remained was perhaps an intimation. The universe is drifting away. The universe is drifting away from, not toward, the center of gravity, though no one knows why. It was all right. We will not understand it not in a thousand human lifetimes. And here's another one. A young woman from Punjab and her baby trail the mother and child, and no matter what the mother does, she cannot completely shrug off their shadow. Even though she does not understand why this young woman and infant boy from a distant land must follow them, she tolerates it. They must be looking for something very important, she reasons. Or perhaps it is simpler. Perhaps they have been drawn by the great Silver River, like so many are drawn. The woman from Punjab mutters sometimes, sometimes sings in an incredibly lovely voice, sometimes wails, but all without sound, and the infant boy cries at times and sleeps the rest of the time. Inevitably, at some point in every day, the young woman from Punjab and the baby appear, though some days it is very late. Sometimes the mother goes to look for them, and if she cannot find them, she goes back home and waits for them to come. She knows it must be a far place they journey from. Her hunch is Punjab, though she cannot be sure. She notices that more and more the woman, when she arrives, is crying. The mother remembers how difficult it was when her own child was a baby, and she also understands how difficult it must be for them to be so far from home. If she could only verify their existence, then perhaps there would be a shift in their rapport, in their relationship to one another, in what could be communicated. The mother does not dare ask the child about them, as she is not prepared for the answer the child will give. And she also does not want to hear what it will sound like to ask the child casually, have you by any chance seen the woman and the baby from Punjab today? If the young woman and the baby are invisible, it is not on the mother's account. Someday she sees them everywhere she looks. The baby seems to know sign language, as so many babies seem to know these days and the mother feels he is trying to tell her something urgent, but she does not know what. And then they are gone. They do not come back again. A year passes and the mother opens a newspaper and reads about a woman from Punjab who moved to New York when she was six, grew up, 
walked in the American summer, had a son, and one July morning, distraught, killed the baby and then herself. The mother is horrified when she reads this, but she is also a little bit relieved. She gets on her knees. She feels an inexplicable gratitude. Because of what the shadow mother from Punjab has done, this mother will not be required to. She and the child will be spared. I forgot to tell you they're a little scary. <laughs> um, the house seemed to grow light and the air took on a peculiar quality sparkly as if you could see the bright molecules that made up the light. It looked something like pollen to the mother and the mother was perplexed. The child wore a gleaming white dress and a veil and shoes with diamonds on the toes. The mother hoped it was not the child's wedding day already. The child was still young. Of this, the mother felt certain. She took a few, step few steps closer and let out a sigh. It was the day of her first communion. She was receiving the body of Christ, that was all. No cause for alarm, she supposed. She could see it now, the bread, the wine, no cause for concern there, she guessed. There was no bridegroom yet to speak of. But the long pine casket, who was that for? She did not know. Oh, it was not a casket after all, but the tall box the grandfather clock had come in from the North Pole. The mother laughed as the child, as the girl came closer. There were still many years together left to them. There was another mother with another child not far from here, except the child had grown up and gone away as children naturally do. This got the mother to thinking how many times in this very spot the mother and child scenario had replicated itself through time. She thought of the reproduction of motherhood and the reproduction of childhood, and she found herself caught in the reverberating world the world of multiplications and resonances and profiles. Children, a long time after they have left, are known to return to the mothering place. And when they arrive, some remnant of childhood is always still there, waiting for them. Sometimes there is still an alive mother, and sometimes there is not. One child, now a grown man, has just returned from the war. Nevertheless, he limps home to the place of his birth, and his mother is there still waiting. In the forest, she points to a stain on the forest floor. When the neighbors kill a deer, they always call and tell her where they did the field dressing, and she goes in the middle of the night and grabs the heart. The mother is not entirely sure whether her son is living or dead or somewhere in transit, like the steaming body of the deer. The next time your life feels bereft of meaning, go to the mothering place if you can and greet that mother and she will open her cupped hands 
and she will show you the heart. Compelled into the dark forest after midnight, the mother in a brown suede coat went out in search of a buck in order to mate. In her mind, it had seemed that she had ventured far into the night, driven by desire, deep into the heart of the forest, though in reality, not but a few moments had passed before she was shot dead through the heart. That night, long ago, the hunters ran to find their prize, but when they realized their mistake, they were sore afraid. What was a woman with a brown suede coat and hooves doing out in the forest during the rut, they wondered, and horrified, they covered her body with leaves and fled. Meanwhile, the deliriously hallucinating mother sees the enormous buck in the wood and she calls to it with lust's strange call. The planet is suspended in darkness and there is violence and mystery at the heart of existence. Sexual Congress provides wild new life, a life impervious to bullets or harm. And the mother gets up at last and brushing off the dry leaves and moss and twigs, she makes her way home where the child sitting at the window waits. The men who had covered her body with leaves had fled the scene utterly, but their fleeing stayed in them, and many times they returned to the place where nothing was left but a light brown suede coat. There were no other earthly remains, not hair, not bones, not hooves, and for the rest of eternity, the woman stalked the men and haunted them. The child sits high, high up and looks at herself in the mirror. There is something unnerving about a child dangling in the air while a hand bearing silver airborne scissors glides by. She is having her first haircut. The mother watches as the curls fall in slow motion to the floor. So many things are always falling. The tables fell through the floor, but that is another story. The mother and the child missed already the falling hair and all the feelings they had no names for. In the valley, the Palatines dreamt of building boats, but the boats would not float, so they turned to coffin making, but lost heart after a while and decided to try their hand at tables. The Palatines loved tables as all men love tables. They loved tables as women love linens. Tables were a place to plan a strategy, arm wrestle, or drink a stout. But something was wrong with the tables. The tables were too heavy to lift, and they had a habit of falling through the floor like boats of stone. With coffins, 
It did not matter how far they fell into the earth. In fact, the farther a coffin fell into the earth, the better. This way they could layer the dead, and the dead would not be quite so lonely or sad. Galileo tells us that the tables fall at the same rate as the child's hair. The deeper the coffin sank, the more pleased everyone was with the arrangement. Sitting high, high up in that little executioner's chair, the scissors and the child gleam. Some men, but not all, revere war. The dead in the valley lay in layers. The mother gathered the child's hair and placed it in a glassine envelope. There it will quietly lie through the years of peace and through the years of war. How many years would tresses fall, falling on human time? The mother bends to the ground and collects the hair of the young men who will not come home again. The child's hair fell a long way to the floor that day. A few more, how are we doing for time? I'm okay? She cannot fathom the time that has elapsed since the galaxy was formed or the vastness that they are situated in. The oldest star in the galaxy is 13.2 billion years old and the galaxy itself is about 10 billion years old. The next arm of stars can be located about 7,000 light years away. What is 7,000 light years to her? She cannot imagine how infinitesimal they are. There is not a word that comes in her language to describe the quality of the smallness or the distance or the wonder or the fear. In the vast black cosmos, the planet floats. She thinks of it, beautiful beyond belief, swaddled in blue. She looks up to where the child now stands under the arbor in the children's garden. It is the first time she has been allowed to use the sharp clippers to prune the roses. Light floods the entrance to the darkened garden. Holding the glinting clippers above her head, the child whispers, I feel important, and reaches up. All time, all space, rush to her side. Her life is flooded with beauty and purpose. All the energy of the universe streaming toward that tiny, immeasurable, yet indelible, indestructible moment. The child illuminated, illuminated, and on tiptoe. It can never be destroyed. I feel important or taken away. All had been preparation for this moment, so that the child standing in the children's garden under the arch, pruning the roses now with great seriousness and delicacy and care for the first time, might feel the full force and enormity of her one life, claimed for a moment from the vast and rushing void all around her, and the flames 
and the heartache. This was their job all along, the mother thought, to make transactions with beauty and enchantment, morning glories and roses covering the arbor. One day the mother dreams, without her, the child will stand under the Arc de Triomphe in Paris, and she will reach up as if to touch it, and it will come to her again, suddenly, gravely, inexplicably. I feel important. The mother woke up mother woke early to bake the epiphany cake. As always, it was to be pl plain with a little bit of spice to commemorate the Magi's gifts to the Christ child, and inside a little trinket or treasure was to be placed. The mother plucked a fancy almond from the cupboard to place in the batter. She assumed the trinket was meant to be the Christ child. Whoever found it would be designated queen of the evening and be allowed to preside over the night's most exquisite mysteries. The mother and child thought that this sounded wonderful, to be queen of the mysterious evening. This is my, this is my nightmare that I don't bring all the pages. <laughs> I don't have the end to this story, I'm sorry. Perhaps she was a soul in transit. Perhaps she had been put in the chamber where one waits purification. After the conflagration, where had the 3,000 souls gone? They must have gone somewhere. It is said that when an eyeball is removed from a corpse and is pointed toward the light, that one final tiny inverted image can be etched on the retina. Only at the moment of death is an image stabilized for any period of time. In any case, she was not dead. She was in motion and being bombarded by images and light, both outward and inward. How strange is the present, with all that past streaming in and all that future seeping through. It was something exhilarating the present, open, fluid, malleable, and it both pleasured and frightened her. Moments of the past invading the present from one direction, and from the other direction, the future. All was in coexistence. There was no way really around it. The grandmother from the North Pole was acquiring extra vision in her left eye. It came from years and years of looking at snow and white light, the grandmother surmised. To her ancestors it had happened and now it was happening to her and maybe one day to the child it would happen again. 
The doctor agreed that people of Nordic origin seemed at a certain age predisposed to this darkly illuminated sight, which was sometimes confused with blindness. The child could not imagine what the sparkling eyes of the grandmother saw now as the snowflakes fell into their cereal bowls. But before very long, the grandmother said simply, I see white roses. Sometimes, though not often, she said, you see a thing as it really is. After a few moments, the grandmother looked up and said, dark matter really exists, but so does luminous matter. And above the grandmother and child, the flying reindeer passed. Let me read just two more short ones. On the, north, on the north pole of Mars, liquid water is being searched for tonight. Beneath the polar ice, well into the permafrost underground, deposits of water are believed to lie. From this distance, it certainly does seem as if those smooth, bluish areas on the crater floor could be ponds. I can't wait to get there, the grandmother from the North Pole says. She thinks about the planet's obliquity, the angle at which its poles tilt toward the sun. Liquid water, she smiles, and she opens her mouth like a baby bird awaiting a droplet. I can almost taste it. Still, the crust is thicker and colder than they previously thought, says the child. And the liquid water, if it exists at all, is a lot deeper below the surface than once thought. You might as well stay here, the child says, a while longer. In a trance, she makes her way to the flagship. She skittles across the frozen tundra to the vault where the world seeds are being laid to store. There, beneath the shining ice, seeds and sprouts from every planet on Earth will slumber, protected until the end of time. No earthquake or nuclear catastrophe or funnel or any other heartache or sorrow, including the heartaches and sorrows yet to come, will harm this bank of seeds and nascent growing things. After the end of the world, there is another world. I know the grandmother whispers that we are losing biodiversity every day. She is talking in a sweet and swaddling voice to the little dreaming seedlings. The grandmother from the North Pole has been consumed by a lifelong mission that is only now revealed to the child. All her life she has scoured the earth collecting seeds from every plant in the world to be stored in the great vault beneath the snow, singing to them as she goes. One by one she cradles them 
and then drops them into the liquid nitrogen where they are preserved in frozen, suspended animation. The seed crib strapped to her back. Legions of grandmothers carrying sacks of seeds from every position on the globe can now be seen. They nod and wave to one another as they pass. Having traversed once more the entire world, the grandmother from the North Pole arrives again at the Global Seed Vault, only 600 miles from her home at the North Pole. She waits for admittance. No one person knows all the codes. At, the last door, at last the door opens and she unstraps the seed crib from her back. With this, the grandmother's head grows pointy and she bores through the hard, smooth ice and deposits the seeds inside the earth. Over and over she does this in silence until she is finished. The crib is light now and she will stop home for a moment before resuming her toil. Once the Egyptians saw her pass on a papyrus raft. Once the people in Jinjin asked her what she was looking for. Once when her children wandered down for breakfast, she was not there. Things begin to make more sense to the child. Open your eyes, she says, tugging at her grandmother's sleeve, and she puts her hand to her grandmother's glassy forehead. The sleeps will sleep in the climate control far beneath the permafreeze for something like an eternity. With each deposit now, the grandmother lingers longer and longer under the earth. She is more and more exhausted now. Luckily, the child has finally gotten a picture phone. Luckily, the picture phone has been vastly improved, so it can still reach the grandmother, who is now surrounded by a fog of dry ice 500 feet beneath the surface. She smiles, for the she smiles for the child and waves, even though she is so tired. Luckily, the child can recognize her, even when she has assumed the shape of a barge, or a lozenge, or a seed pod, or a toboggan. Luckily, the child can picture her, even when the picture phone clouds, and the reception is bad, and the fog of ice does not lift. When the grandmother, surrounded by seeds, falls asleep, no one can blame her. Eventually, an automated voice will say to please hold. The child doesn't mind. The child can hold on for a long time. Thank you. Twenty minutes left. Um, so why don't we take as after people leave? Why don't we take some questions? What do you think, or Roberto and Carol? Do you want? To? I don't know if these questions. Yeah, yeah. Well, as you might start approaching, I, I, I couldn't help but be struck by the Arctic references. Motherhood is a child management, it's future management. And it seems to me that, that 
know the future the way you so movingly predicted it in terms of disease and perhaps it comes more disease that you sort of project something into the future and then you write the narrative backwards as to how it might change the present. And that seems to me, Tommy, as you're looking at these built environments that then uh, submit a potential dystopic world, you sort of in addition to taking what's there, these sort of photo ops that are ready for our, our, our consumption, but to pick them in such a way that you that they that they convey the ways in which uh, a future might actually play out and what it might be done about it in the in the in the present. Go ahead. No, please, Carol, you go ahead. No, you go. You go. I mean, you go. I think that's exactly right, and I think that um, art is often a rehearsal for the future, uh, ways of um, uh, integrating, ways of uh, imagining uh, multiple, multiple uh, endings, beginnings, that kind of um, porousness that the things you can allow in as a result of a certain, a certain um, stance, a certain. Um, uh, vulnerability, but also a certain informed place in which you know everything comes into play. One's life, one. I mean, you see that in all of your work as well. Would you say that? I mean, that a lot of this also takes place in those gaps in between, which mm -hmm. is something I, I just remarked mm -hmm. on at the beginning. But mm -hmm. in in some of your other novels, and I'm imagining that Mother and Child is, is similar. That that the that the narrative is as much in in, in the spaces in between mm -hmm. as it is in, in what's being played out, and those yeah. are. Because the reader anticipates a possible ending that may or may that may be frustrated or confirmed later on. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and uh, well, go ahead. Talk about talk, me. Yeah. Oh no, I'm, I was thinking about this idea of work. Oh, here. This idea. You can you hear me? That's important. Oh, <laughs> somebody's hearing me. <laughs> I am. <laughs> That's all that counts, Carol. <laughs> I like this idea of working backwards, and uh, um, you know, one of my favorite writers is James Tiptree Jr. And one of the best stories she wrote about disease you know, uh, was is written in reverse. And uh, but I think that the the way that the three of us are playing with time and um, breaking down this idea of linearity, especially like in your work, Roberta, the way you. Um, uh, for example, your your book on national photography, Mexican photography, is not a linear progression. How do you, you know you move back and forth? Well, I think we choose, we choose it because yeah. <laughs> if there's one strategy that that we that we've inherited um, from certain modes of modernity, it's it's those that go against this idea of inevitability. The, the, pair, that is the, the best corrective to speculative um, wagers on a future is, 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 is to counter any um, mandate for an inevitability that the, that the world has to turn out in a certain way, that, that a certain narrative has to end in a particular, in a particular form. So mm -hmm. these ways in which one um, frustrates that possibility best way to, to um, avoid, avoid that um, predetermined outcome that I think you spoke of mm -hmm. in the beginning. Mm -hmm. 
do you all have questions or do you want us? We can. Uh, we're going to stay here until ten thirty. That's brave. It's very long. I know eight thirty to ten thirty. Yeah. Plus, we're where your bus has to come. You at might 10:30. come up to the, to the microphone. I think there's got to be a way in which um, um, solitude and silence re-enter uh, a, a, a human life, <laughs> you know, that we're so mediated now and we're so, it's very hard to hear, it's very hard to pick up on what's coming through us and what's happening and what we're receiving, I think, with the um, layers and layers and layers of mediation and communication in ways in which we're always talking and we're always, instead of, you know, uh, uh, waiting to receive on some level. And, um, you know, I always tell my students they, they just need to go away somewhere um, any way they can, whether they have to go to some place and dog sit and be, you know, alone in a, in a, uh, the country or what, whatever. It's very hard to hear hear anything or know what you're thinking about anything with so much influence and so much um, put on you about what to think and how to be and what to do and what your future is, etc. That um, um, I, I think that would be the first thing I would absolutely. And it's very very hard to do, you know. And everyone says, well, how do I practically do that? And Practically, there's just got to be a way to find a, a speechless way of earning some money for a while and taking yourself out of out of the um, the world as we know it, just for a while. You know, you always have to come back, obviously, but you come back different. You know, um, I went um, to artist colonies uh, often uh, and places where I was purposely and physically removed from from what was um, familiar to me. It, it seems one, one interesting to me technique, it's, and I speak from just something that is of, of interest to me, is precisely looking at photographs that were published in the mass media and other camera-generated um, uh, venues. Because what's great about photography is, and Connie can speak to this as well, is that it, it, it seems to be about something that's already happened past is captured in the frame, but in point of fact, it actually holds a, a potential future that didn't play out, right? And so it seems to me that one takes photographs from the Los Angeles Times, from the New York Times, from the just general image environment, that by describing it, you're actually inserting yourself in a history that may not have, may or may not have been yours, and that you may have the option to write, it, write the history differently. In other words, a history that leads to a present in alternate routes, it's not. Ex it's better because you're not actually. It's not predictive. You're 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 redefining how the present came to be. Mm -hmm. um, I, this is a kind of another way to look at it. I mean, that I was thinking about is um, first of all, I think being citizens of the U.S. and developed countries, we have quite a sort of fixed hegemonic idea that 
future. And even though we can theoretically understand it, it still has a, a, a quite a powerful role for us in seduction. And uh, what I found so interesting about talking about illness uh, and profound is uh, is that in this country we, we deeply deny death, you know, and then it runs alongside of us. And part of the the North and South Poles. Um, and another thing I was struck by your work was the uh, the biological, the, the the body, which is actually, and I failed to mention this in my own work. It's not so much about built environments; it's about the body of a photographer in space. It's about the body, my body, and. Uh, both the North and South Poles uh, hold a really, you know, I mean, I was trying to break down this idea of an Antarctic imaginary, but the, the but it's difficult because it always shifts. There's such an idea of the heroic that we can conquer anything. I was interested in being there because it's uh, we're a place where they they uh, do Martian colonization exercises. Uh, but um, it's also these spaces the last spaces where we feel that nature is greater than us, right? And, and it's this cornball and potentially slippery slope into like a creepy romantic kind of statement. It's like, I don't know what to do with that. And also with younger people, I think that the problems before you as younger people are utterly different than the problems I face. Like a young feminist now, for example, just to take one, faces very different and, uh, and also, Roberto, the, uh, the work that you were showing from the 70s and the 60s, I found such a, a viscerality. And um, I think that it's many young artists, and I don't know if this is true in um, writing, but are looking very carefully at the 60s and 70s forms. And I, I, I think that there's just a, a quality that it's outside of kind of great corporate market. But there was a time when things weren't recuperated like that. But I, I think we're in a major shift, you know, from a macro to a I mean, I think I think there's an interest in the '60s and '70s as well, um, as there is just a general re refiguring of, um, of of certain kinds of modern life. And I think I won't speak for all three of us, but I think that we we are bound, and so was Anna Joy's provo provocation at the beginning by rethinking the modernist project, or all of us are invested in, in a kind of writing or art practice that used to claim that it that it had a uh, that it that it had a specialness in relation to the future, that it would be recognized in somehow some kind of special way, um, not by the present, but, but somehow postponed into the into the future. And of course, that's that's really not unlike the project of neoliberalism, which is precisely. Right. That, that project that Connie is depicting is that there were all these promises that were made about the, the, the social good of certain kinds of technological advance and economic uh, uh, advance that, are, that we're living uh, quite desperately today. Anybody else want a question that you can get many answers to? <laughs> Yes. Um, Can you repeat the question? The question is that that Jane Cortez herself, admitted, admittedly, uh, places her work in the unconscious, which is to say that it's a she aligns herself with a certain kind of surrealism, which says that fear and fantasy always will disrupt what we actually really desire. 
And so some of the images, for example, that kind of curve into what, what might have been expected as the next line are, are that ways in which the excess of, of, of both fear and fantasy are kind of disrupting the present, or disrupting her particular, um, the stability of the worldview that she's painting. Right? Today on this day is actually, um, becomes this kind of horror show of cadavers sort of dropping thump, thump, thump into, into some kind of uh, mortuary. And it just seems to me that that particular poem has resonance with the, for example, the Los Angeles uh, County Museum as it's kind of going up in smoke, even though it's a sort of fireworks display. So in other words, it's a way that she's also un she's also writing that which is the unwanted thoughts of what we see. And it seems to me that that poem is kind of the unwanted thought, even though it's separated by time and space, of what was taking place in 1964 at the opening of the Black Museum. They should not be there. That your actual, not that your there. actual yes, body exactly. should be there. that uh, images are so deeply controlled that that we, you know, and again you mentioned this but and as well, but uh, we feel like we're in, we know everything, we're in this media-saturated society, but, you know, there's really very little that we see, so I think that's more the perspective I'm coming from. I have to think about your question more, it's a good one to ask. Carol, why don't you have something to say? <laughs> <laughs> Okay, uh, it's 10.25, we've got three minutes. Carol? No, it's okay. You need a noise. 
<laughs> no, it's okay. Let's. That might be the right place. No, I don't really want another question. Or, let's take you? one more question. Not that we did so well with the NASA's question. No, it's, it's, but I'll talk with you personally about it in Los Angeles. <laughs> Um, I don't know, it was a bit circuitous, you know, I always wanted to be a uh, painter and I didn't have the rapport with the canvas that I knew that I would need in order to, to uh, paint and yet uh, I'm intensely interested in the visual and was very taken with the ways in which you work with visual and, and language. And I've used visuals in my own work. Um, as text. Um, I, uh, the art lover is, the art is, lover is filled with it. Yeah. And um, I uh, wanted to be a musician as well, <laughs> um, but I'm a t terrible uh, pianist. <laughs> and so that wasn't an option. And yet again, you know, <clears throat> my work is probably more informed by music than any of the other arts. And I love it more well, film I love most, but all of these things have informed it, and yet um, language was what finally drew me, and I understood that I could stay with it for a lifetime. And so that kind that made the decision for me. You know that that was the thing that I could. Uh, uh, that was beyond my reach and yet compelled me to stay again and again, come back to over and over again. And so that became clear that that would be, um, for me, the, 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 if, you, if one must decide on a genre, and I think one does, you know. Uh, there is a choice there at a certain point. Um, that's how, for me, it came about. Oh, well. I studied to be a concert pianist when I was a kid, oh. but like you, I was terrible. <laughs> I was very passionate, but technically horrible. And then uh, I was, I thought I'd be a writer for a while. And then I was a painter for about 10 years, and that drove me insane. And I painted a lot of photographs. <laughs> and then I moved in later to making photography and video. But I think the thing is, I mean, basically about being an artist, uh, it's not, it's a very difficult. Um, it's a very difficult path. I mean, uh, I read a study once that artists are higher rollers than uh, hedge fund uh, hedge fund people. Uh, high rollers in, in Vegas. Well, you really invest a lot in your work, and uh, I, I guess the bottom line for me is I've always felt like I was I would go crazy if I can make work on some level. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, very briefly, I would, I would just answer that I, I think I'm drawn to basic units and that as an art historian, I'm interested in the basic unit that is the sentence and many art historians seem to make that and uh, are invisible to that fact. But I think the, the sentence is precisely that architecture which activates all the ethical and, and, and aesthetic possibilities of what you're going to write about and that at the level of, as a poet, is are just peculiarities of certain things that you can do, like 
um, try to create the Baroque effects of a Spanish Golden Age sonnet in what would be English, uh, American English, right? So th these are just tonalities that, that basically draw me to a particular genre. And of course, I think what unites those all is, is, is basically the task of the translator. It's by translating that I actually discovered any of these things at all. Yeah, it's amazing. I think there was one last question. Did you? <laughs> Ask it quickly. Good. Yeah, I mean, she is constantly, you know, she's shot in the forest, and she she's constantly uh, um, uh, wounded or killed or mortally injured, and then she rises again over and over and over throughout the throughout the book. It's almost a meditation in that way, in that you know. Um, or she stays dead for a while and she ruminates from there about the child or about uh, really how, what, how, um, uh, what a consolation it really is to be so insignificant and to be so small and to, and to rest in a certain way. But then she's back again and then she's back again. And you know, I didn't know anything about what was up with this mother and child. I just followed them and followed them and followed them and noticed that there was a very, very odd distance in my telling of their story. I noticed that and I also noticed that there were, um, uh, intonations uh, from the Bible maybe and from other sources and I just kept saying what why am I writing it in this way and it doesn't look like it doesn't sound like other work I've done and so I just followed them through this um, uh, th through this journey until uh, I thought I realized I thought I understood what had happened to them and I finished the book and I you know closed it and that was that I reread it uh, about a month after that or so, and I thought I had saved them in my writing of it, but when I read it over again, it was right there. No, they're actually not okay. But it had been off limits for me to even, even um, as the writer, bear that sort of thing. And so the, the, the mystery, um, remains in the text itself somehow. You know, it, it stays in the book. And yet, after I read it, it was very clear what had happened. I just consciously, as I was writing it, couldn't allow myself to see it. I also think it's really interesting because this book was finished way before I got this other news about my own heart. And yet, all the way through it, there is that knowledge somewhere. And so it's very, very um, strange to read it now. I did a reading the other, um, uh, last weekend actually, and my mother was in the audience and she said, well, but when did you write this book? And, you know, I thought you did this, you know, I thought this was, 
done, you know, takes took me about three years to finish it kind of thing. And yet it's all there too. And so there's that, you know. But as as an artist, you just take, you understand that that's, that's part of what, what you, you, if you're, if you are, if you do sort of enter that kind of state of um, receiving what's out there, you're, you start to know things in that way. And so um, the very, very, very interesting process to me. And it started from a very, very specific place of, um, of danger and fear, you know, rooted in reality. Um, a, a tree fell on my house and the power went out and um, the next day the power came back on and everything got a little bit back to normal. But that night uh, what happened was that there was a, a storm of bats in my house that had come in with the tree in the house. And that just spun me into a whole other world. I'd been serenely sort of writing another book that I'd been working on for like 10 years. And I really, you know, was, was well into that book at that point. But it didn't matter. This took over. And then day after day after day, these stories just insisted on being written in this kind of way. And um, so it was a very, very interesting process. And. Um, um, the notion of um, the the uh, the the book of the dead quality <laughs> is um, is to me extremely uh, um, just mysterious, you know. And I hope I do honor to 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 the enigma of it all. You know, I would try very hard to not push it in certain kinds of ways, but to allow it to just be. You've been so patient. Thank you. Yeah. Thank, you. Thank you so much. <laughs> Bye guys. Yay. Thank you all so much. Um, and those of you who um, stayed, this was, of course, amazing, amazing, but you also must be really sleepy, especially if you've been there all day. Um, if you're staying at the Sheraton, there is a nighttime shuttle that we hired um, that can take you back to the Sheraton. Is anybody, can I see hands, if anybody? Okay, the nighttime shuttle, um, it's from 11 to midnight on a loop, and if you go out and down the stairs from the second floor of the Price Center, and through the doors that are directly in front of the stairs, past the Burger King, um, there's a little turn, a bus turnaround right there, right in front of the ATM machine, and that's where the UCSD shuttle will pick you up on a loop to go back and forth to the Sheraton. And as you know, um, in the mornings and the rest of the day, you're sort of on your own with walking in cabs and buses, but there's lots of information provided to you on how to do that. Um, but at nighttime, we do have a shuttle for you back. Thank you all for staying. We'll see you tomorrow. And thank you, Canada. God, the explanations for directions here is like, <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs>